Welcome to Igniting Your Faith. We encourage you to thoughtfully and prayerfully let God's love make an impact in your life. Now here is Dr. Chris Fisher with today's message of powerful truth from God's Word. Well, we're coming near the end of this series on lessons from the wilderness wanderings. We want to circle back today to look at an important crisis moment in leadership that has lessons for our spiritual life in number 16. The episode involves a challenge to Moses and Aaron's leadership by their relatives, Korah and some Levites, and some people from the Reubenite tribe, Dathan and Abiram. Maybe if you remember uh, Cecil B. DeMille's Ten Commandments, anybody remember that? Charlton Heston, Moses. This is an episode that takes place at the very end of the movie, and it kind of represents all the 40 years of wandering. I guess Cecil thought that was a really cool episode that would make for good film, and he tried to put it in there. Uh, but the, it really does have a lot of wonderful lessons recorded there. It's also referred to in the New Testament in the letter of Jude, where the Lord's brother warns about ungodly people who pollute their bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. And he lifts up, he lifts up Korah as an example of those who reject authority uh, of rebels. So before we get to those larger lessons that the New Testament points to, let's look at the story. Ruth read the first part of it from number 16. Here's the setting. God has chosen Moses to lead the people, and he chose Aaron as high priest. And not long after the first failed entry into Canaan, as the people begin their 40 years of wandering, this episode takes place. It starts like this in Numbers 16. Korah, son of Izhar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, and certain Reubenites, Dathan and Abiram, sons of Eliab, and An, son of Peleth, became insolent and rose up against Moses. With them were 250 Israelite men, well-known community leaders who had been appointed members of the council. They came as a group to Moses and Aaron and said to them, You've gone too far. The whole community's holy. Every one of them. And the Lord's with them. Why then do you set yourselves above the Lord's assembly? Now, notice straight off the lie these men are operating under. The idea that Moses and Aaron have set themselves over the assembly. You only have to listen to the many conversations between God and Moses to know that it, the last idea Moses had on his mind was leading those people. Remember in front of the burning bush, Lord, pick somebody else. I don't want to do this. I can't speak very well. I'm not impressive. Pick somebody else. And that's when the Lord says, didn't I make your mouth? Can't I give you the words? Hopefully you know the rest of that story. You know, many times Moses is in there in conversation with God and saying, why did you pick me to lead these people? They're such a burden to me. I don't know what to do with them. They're too much for me. So you know that Moses didn't stick himself in this position. In fact, the scripture records in another challenge to his leadership that he was the most humble, the meekest man on the face of the earth. 
And in the context, it kind of, you, you get a meaning that he didn't claim anything for himself. He didn't think much of himself. He, he was very uh, um, humble uh, in his, his own self-estimation. And, and so you see, though, as he gets to know God and he understands who God is and he understands that God has picked him, that he sees when somebody challenges his leadership and Moses knows they're not challenging him, they're challenging the God who picked him. And instead of getting all uh, like tit for tat, let's get into a fight here, let's see who's boss, he falls on his face and defers to God. And God takes care of correcting the leadership problem. So you only have to listen to those conversations to know Moses and, uh, between Moses and God to know just who picked whom to lead Israel. So let me just give you the story in miniature. Tell it. Moses says to Korah and his followers, here's what you need to do. You and your 250 get together a censer, put incense in it with coals, and bring it before the Lord at the, at the tent of meeting. And he calls Dathan and Abiram to come and do the same. But Dathan and Abiram refuse. And here's what they say. They say, We will not come. This is in number 1613. Isn't it enough that you've brought us up out of the land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness? And now you also want to lord it over us? And moreover, you haven't brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey or given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Do you want to treat these men like slaves? No, we will not come. So you see the hardened attitude towards Moses' leadership and towards what's been going on in the people, and they're blaming him for the setbacks of Israel's sins, the sins of the people. They're not seeing God at all behind the whole scene of what's happening in Israel. And here's Moses' response. It says, Moses became very angry and said to the Lord, do not accept their offering. I've not taken so much as a donkey from them, nor have I wronged any of them. And so Moses says to Korah, you and all your followers are to appear before the Lord tomorrow, you and they and Aaron. Each man is to take his censer and put incense in it, 250 censers in all, and present it before the Lord. You and Aaron are to present your censers also. And so each of them took his censer, put burning coals and incense in it, and stood with Moses and Aaron at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And when Korah had gathered all his followers in opposition to them at the entrance to the tent of meeting, the glory of the Lord appeared to the entire assembly. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Separate yourselves from this assembly so I can put an end to them at once. <laughs> now God's stepping in. You see who's in charge and who has appointed Moses to lead the people. Now look at Moses and Aaron's response. Moses and Aaron fell face down and cried out, Oh God, the God who gives breath to all living things, will you be angry with the entire assembly when only one man sins? And then the Lord said to Moses, Say to the assembly, Move away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And so Moses ordered everybody to clear away from their tents. And the people listened to Moses. They saw the glory of the Lord. 
And there's Korah and Dathan and Byram with their family and all they possess. Next to their tents as the people separate away from them. And then Moses got up and he went to them. He warned the assembly, move back from the tents of these wicked men. Do not touch anything belonging to them or you will be swept away because of all their sins. So they moved away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And then Moses said, this is how you will know that the Lord has sent me to do all these things and that it was not my idea. If these men die a natural death and suffer the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about something totally new and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them with everything that belongs to them and they go down alive into the realm of the dead, then you will know that these men have treated the Lord with contempt. And as soon as he finished saying these things, the ground under them split apart and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them and their households and all those associated with Korah together with their possessions. And they went down alive into the realm of the dead with everything they owned, and the earth closed over them, and they perished and were gone from the community. And at their cries, (laughs) sorry, this is, it's not really funny, but it's rather terrifying. And my, my emotional response to terror and grief sometimes is laughter, so don't take that. It's like, oh my gosh, what is happening here? At their cries, all the Israelites around them fled, shouting, they're going to swallow us too. And then fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. Now, God is decisively establishing who is in charge in in, in the people of God. And it's not Moses and Aaron's idea that they be in charge, that they are God's representatives to the people. And then I'll I'll skip over a little bit. Those censers become holy. They hammer them flat and and nail them around the altar as a reminder from then on who is supposed to be the priest and who the leader of the people and that God has chosen them. And the next day, now the, the community isn't over their rebellion, though. Listen to what happens next. The next day, the whole Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. You've killed the Lord's people as if they're the ones who open the earth's mouth. You see, they're still not seeing God. They're still not surrendered to God. They're still not trusting God. They're still kind of on their own. You have killed the Lord's people. But when the assembly gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron and turned toward the tent of meeting, suddenly the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord appeared. And then Moses and Aaron went to the front of the tent of meeting and the Lord said to Moses, Get away from this assembly so I can put an end to them at once. And they fell face down. Now, you see Moses and Aaron's reaction. It's great respect and fear of God, but it's something else too. It's a spirit of love and intercession because look what they do. Then Moses said to Aaron, take your censer and put incense in it along with burning coals from the altar and hurry to the assembly to make atonement for them. You see, their sin is so grave that the spirit of destruction is about to come down upon all of them because they haven't just rebelled against Moses and Aaron. They've rebelled against God. 
The spirit of destruction is about to come down upon them. Moses and Aaron, Moses says to Aaron, get a censer and hurry to the assembly to make atonement for them. Wrath has come out from the Lord. The plague has started. And so Aaron did, as Moses said, and ran into the midst of the assembly. The plague had already started among the people, but Aaron offered the incense and made atonement for them. You know, remember one of the things God had said to the people and they, they came out of Egypt. He said, if you obey me and you keep my covenant, none of the plagues that came upon the Egyptians will come upon you. But if you disobey me and you rebel against me and you do your own thing and you let sin become your master, then all the plagues of Egypt will come upon you. And that what Israel goes through is a type, an image and representation of the consequences or cost of sin. Sin is no small thing in God's eyes. Sin is what separates from us from him and causes us to be doomed. Doomed not just to eternal separation from God, but to the fiery pit, the lake of fire, eternal destruction, damnation. It's not a small thing, sin. And what happens to Israel is a picture of the consequences of sin so that we, the inheritors of all these lessons, will be warned to flee from sin, not to become rebels like them, not to reject God's leaders like them, not to reject God's truth like them, not to reject God like them, not to put themselves in God's place as if they could lead and God can't. But here's what happens as Aaron offers the incense and made atonement for them. He stood between the living and the dead and the plague stopped. The work of the priest. The work of the priest to stand between God and the people in their sin. And when he did that work, at Moses' direction, at God's direction, because the Spirit of God was reminding Moses, what's the work of the priest? You need, these people need an intercessor right now because the consequences of sin, their grave and terrible sin, their terrible disrespect of God is about to come down upon their heads and it's going to kill them. It's going to wipe them out. But the priest can intercede, the high priest. And that's what Aaron does and the plague stops. And of those millions of people, only 14,700 people died from the plague in addition to those who had died because of Korah. And then Aaron returned to Moses at the entrance to the tent of meeting, for the plague had stopped. Now there's two other stories that follow this. One, the next one is the budding of Aaron's staff. So now there's this contest of who's really a leader. And, and God says, here's what I want you to do. A leader from every tribe in Israel is supposed to present a wooden staff before me at the tent of meeting and put it in the tent. And I'll show who's my priest. He's, here's what he said. Place him in the tent of meeting in front of the Ark of the Covenant law where I meet with you. And the staff belonging to the man I choose will sprout. And I'll rid myself of this constant grumbling against you by the Israelites. <laughs> Here's God. I'll rid myself of this constant grumbling against you by confirming who is the one I've chosen. And if you know the rest of the story, you know that during the night, 
They, they carved their names on each of those staffs, so there could be no doubt about which belonged to who. And the next morning when they went in and got the staffs, they were all the same except one. They were all dead and dry, just like a staff would be. But Aaron's rod had sprouted, budded, flowered, and produced almonds in that one night. And then the people saw the power of God in the life given through that staff to show that he had chosen Aaron. And then the next chapter deals with the duties of the priests and the Levites and the offerings they're to make. And if you know the law, you know that there's a big section about the atonement they make, about the role of offering sacrifice for sin, to stand between God and the people and re represent the people, and what to do when the people sin unintentionally and the consequences of sin are coming on their heads, but they need to be forgiven. And what to do when they sin intentionally and the consequences that come because of that. And at the whole end of it, there's this beautiful phrase about Aaron's priesthood, where God says, I've chosen him. I myself selected your fellow Israelites from among the Israelites as a gift, your fellow Levites from among the Israelites as a gift to you dedicated to the Lord to do the work at the tent of meeting. But only you and your sons, God's talking to Aaron, only you and your sons may serve as priests in connection with everything at the altar and inside the curtain. I am giving you the service of the priesthood as a gift. I, this is God, I am giving you the service of priesthood as a gift. Anyone else who comes near the sanctuary is to be put to death. Now, you see there in that picture, the priest, the one who's able to represent the people to God, but nobody else is able to get close to God. Now, I just want you to see that, that Old Testament situation of Israel. Now, there's a bunch of lessons in this story. That's kind of the, the story in a nutshell. And I, I want to number a couple of those and, and look at them with you. First, Moses and Aaron didn't choose themselves to be leaders. The Lord chose them. By rebelling against the leaders of God's people, Korah and his associates were really rebelling against God. They were jealous of the gift of leadership God had given to Moses and Aaron, and they wanted to take it for themselves. You always have to be suspicious of people who aspire to the role of leaders because of their own agenda and what they can get for themselves, especially a would-be leader of God's people. In Matthew 20, Jesus responds to a mother's request for special treatment for her sons, and he uses the opportunity to teach what spiritual leadership really looks like based on the example of himself. Maybe you remember the, the story. John and James's mother comes and says, Lord, and she falls on the ground before him, like on her face, like really humble. But I've really got a, an, an, like a super not humble request for you. And she asks, when you come into your kingdom, can my two sons sit on either side of you, commanders in chief? You know, talk about chutzpah. <laughs> and when the other, when the 12 heard about it, they were indignant. The, the other 10, I mean. So there's 12, the other 10. When the 10 heard about it, they were indignant. 
with the two brothers. And Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Sound familiar in this day and age? And their high officials exercise authority over them, but not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, Jesus uses this opportunity to teach what spiritual leadership really looks like based on the example he himself provides. Not lording it over people, as political leaders in the world do, but serving them and laying down his life for them. And that's what Moses was like. He didn't pick that position. He didn't want that position. God picked him, and he picked him to serve the people, to get up there and represent in front of Pharaoh and lead them to freedom, to teach them the way of God so they would know how to walk in the way of life and walk away from sin and destructive things to lead them through the, the pitfalls and challenges of life in the Spirit, to serve them. Moses served as their judge until he wore himself out. I mean, I, I, you know, looked at some of those other stories, and here he gets help because he's wearing himself out. Servant leadership is to be the nature of leadership in the church. And he's instructing the 12 in these principles because he's chosen them to lead his church, training them in what real kingdom leadership looks like. You know, Paul reminds us of the apostles' leadership position in 1 Corinthians 12. Now, you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And God has placed in the church, first of all, apostles. Second, prophets. God has placed them. Okay, so this isn't their idea. This isn't a bunch of people got together in committee and said, hey, let's, how are we going to run this thing? Yeah, what did we learn in that leadership seminar? <laughs> no, this is God picking who's going to run the church, who's in charge, who are the servant leaders. God has put, first of all, the apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, then, and he lists a bunch of other gifts, healing, miracles, guidance, etc., Paul gives a similar list in Ephesians 4.11. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. You hear that? Five-fold leadership list. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. And what's their purpose? To equip all the people to serve. Now, if you're not serving in some way in the body of Christ, serving the will of God to advance his temple and kingdom on the earth, then you haven't lived fully in yet to what God intends and plans for you. And I haven't finished doing my job, right? Because that's one of my purposes. I'm not an apostle. The apostles are the unique foundation of the church. Jesus being the cornerstone, the teaching of the apostles is what the church is built on, the gospel. The full true gospel is handed down by his accurate eyewitnesses who saw his death and his resurrection and passed on his teaching accurately to us through the power of the Holy Spirit he promised them. So there's no substitute for the apostles. In the New Testament, they are the leaders chosen by God to be the foundation of the church. And there's never another foundation 
There's never another one. Anybody who tries to build a foundation outside the teaching of the apostles is not building the church. They're destroying it. They're like Korah and Dathan and Abiram. Notice the apostles. They remained first, not because they lorded it over the church, but because they became Christ's servants, doing what he said, laying down their lives to spread the gospel. You know, there's an important place for spiritual leaders who put God, who God has put in, their, in the church, and God uses them to lead his people. So the apostles is a permanent foundation, and we have their teaching preserved in the New Testament. But the others, prophets, teachers, evangelists, and pastors, they have an ongoing role to continue declaring the Word of God to teach the truths of Christ's teaching and to shepherd God's people, to teach them to serve. That's why in Hebrews 13, believers are encouraged to remember their leaders and submit to their authority, bearing Korah in mind. Remember your leaders, it says there, who spoke the Word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And later in the same chapter, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. A second lesson I want to draw out here is rebellion is sin. And the consequences of sin are deadly. You know, I have to say the judgment on Korah and his gang is one of the most terrifying moments in the wilderness wanderings. It really is. I mean, you see it on the big screen in Cecil B. DeMille, and you're, you're like, wow, wow. But if you really get your head around what's happening there, it's terrifying. You know, think about the earth opening its mouth to swallow those rebels. Rebellion against God is a serious matter. Rebellion is what caused the devil to be thrown out of heaven. It's what caused the human race to be separated from God from the beginning, already in Eden. Paul explains the principle in Romans 13, 2. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. <laughs> and if you think about it, we're all natural-born rebels. You know, we, we push and challenge, we're given a command, we kind of say, how can I get around that, how can I fudge that? And we get the picture that the consequences of rebellion is death. That it's part of the whole ball of wax that goes with being separated from God. What happens to natural-born rebels? They die. And so Paul says in Romans, the wages of sin is death. You know, we can't sugarcoat that. That's our human situation. It's kind of our natural-born nature to be rebels. We're in trouble. You know, we're like those people who stood up to rise against Aaron and Moses even after the earth had swallowed up these rebels, the big-time rebels, and all the other people are, are over there. Instead of seeing, oh, we've offended the holy God, they're still complaining and ready to attack the leaders God picked. And then the plague starts to wipe them out. And it's a picture 
of the consequences of sin vividly written for us so we will be afraid to do that ourselves or if we've been doing it, to repent. That we won't have that same attitude. That's why God told them to nail those censers that came at the cost of those 250 men's lives, to hammer them flat and nail them to the altar so Israel would never forget who God had picked to lead and to be priest. Now, Jude describes the real face of spiritual rebellion in his New Testament letter, warning us about what phony spiritual leaders look like so we may know to get away from them. It's a short letter. It's a one-chapter book. And he says, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals, now he's talking about rebel leaders, certain individuals whose condemnation was written long ago, about long ago, have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ as only sovereign and Lord. Brothers and sisters, there are people in the church today, there are people in the United Methodist Church and many other churches that claim the name of Jesus who are doing that very thing. They're perverting the grace of God into a license for immorality and they are spitting on the lordship and divinity of Jesus Christ. And they're doing it with the name and title of reverend in front of them, their name. Reverend doctor in front of their name. Bishop in front of their name. Don't think that God is fooled by any of that. Though you already know this, Jude continues, I want you to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he's kept in darkness bound with everlasting change for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve an example as of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings beings, but even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Yet these people slander whatever they do not understand, and the very things they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. Woe to them. They've taken the way of Cain. They've rushed for profit into Balaam's era. What did Balaam do? For profit, he sold Israel to idolatry and immorality by advising the king of Moab to send in his troops of ladies to seduce them and get them to offer sacrifices to foreign gods. That was Balaam's advice that he did because he wasn't going to get paid for not being able to curse the people. So he gave advice instead to get, men, to get money. The, they have rushed for profit into Balaam's era. They have, dis, they have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These people are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm. Shepherds who feed only themselves. Remember what real servant leadership looks like in the kingdom? It's not this. There are clouds without rain, 
blown along by the wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. That's the New Testament, folks. What we learn from Korah's rebellion is not just some little terrifying episode in the past. It's a call to repent for God's people today and through all time of rebellion, to submit to the truth of God as has come in the final prophet, Jesus, to submit to the priesthood of God. Now, I'm going to take you to the third one, which is the good news here. The priesthood of God, shadow formed by Aaron, but in fullness revealed in Jesus, the high priest that God has appointed for all time. You know, Jude describes the real face of spiritual rebellion because it's a warning for us to get away from phony spiritual leaders, to recognize them for what they are, to see their false teaching to, for what it is, so that we can get away from them. Because when the judgment falls on them like it did on Korah, we don't want to be near them. There's an episode re related in church history of how the Apostle John was going into a Roman bath. And when he got in there, he saw a well-known Roman heretic who was an opponent and enemy of the gospel. And John was with a couple of companions, and he said, we got to get out of here and immediately because I don't want to be in this building when the judgment comes on that guy. And so they got out. Boom, got out. All right, so let's go to the third lesson and what I want to close with today. The leadership of Moses and Aaron was more than just about being in charge politically, being able to tell the people what to do or needing to even, and, and so on. They were God's representatives to the people. Moses was a prophet given the truth of God's ways to teach the people, people who were coming out of darkness. I mean, let's face it, even with their vague ancestral knowledge that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had a God and, and God was the God of their ancestors, the people of Israel were largely ignorant of the ways of God. They didn't know. That's why when they got to the entrance of Canaan the first time and they got so scared, not knowing or trusting God, that they chickened out and turned away. And here's why God says what he did. He said, they have not known my ways, and so they shall never enter my rest. That was what Moses was there for. And why Moses, as he sees the glory of God, presses into God and says, show me your ways, teach me your ways, so I can know you. Because he sees the glory and the majesty and the love of God, God's great love for this people to rescue them from that horrendous and horrific way of being treated for so many generations and choosing them out of all nations on earth to represent him. Moses was that prophet, given the truth of God's ways to teach the people the task of revealing God's will to them. And Aaron was given the special gift of priesthood to represent the people before God. And that's why in number 16, when the divine judgment of plague was spreading among the people because of their grumbling and rebellion, Moses instructed Aaron to hurry among the people and make atonement for them with coals and incense from the altar. Now, in the book of Revelation, we learn that the burning of incense in heaven represents the prayers of God's people. In the Old Testament, you have this picture of incense on coals 
going up before God and influencing him. But what really influences him in the new covenant is our prayers. In Christ, as we're lifting up and interceding for people. Yeah. Moses instructed Aaron to hurry among them. And the prayers of the high priest brought forth the mercy of God. His intercession put a stop to the plague that came upon thousands for the sin of rebellion. Moses and Aaron are types of Christ's own leadership. And with Joshua as the commander of the army of the Lord, those three together, types of what is fulfilled in one man, Jesus. The truth of God's way, the man of God's own choosing, the high priest appointed by God who makes atonement for the people. These are all shadows of things that are fulfilled in Christ. Jesus is the way to God. He's the great prophet speaking the will of God, revealing fully to us the way of God. He is, what did he say about himself? I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's the way. He's the king appointed by God to lead the people of God forever. He's the great high priest who makes atonement for the sins of the people that we might be forgiven, paying for our sin by his own blood and interceding for us continually. His prayers, it says, are going up continually before God all the time, even right now, praying for us, interceding for us. And as we accept that forgiveness that he offers, as we repent of rebellion, we can be forgiven. It can be washed away from us, along with all of our sins, all the sins that Jude describes against those wicked people, those false leaders of the people of God. Any one of us could be guilty of, of pieces of that list. And what we need to do is confess and repent and ask God to forgive us and accept the atoning work of the great high priest, Aaron. No, Jesus. Jesus, who paid for our sins with his own blood and by whom we can be forgiven and brought in. Now, that old high priest, he could only go in to the tabernacle once a year. The Holy of Holies was shut off. The ability to get in close to God's presence closed down. But in Jesus, the temple of the curtain, remember, it's been torn in two. We can get right into the presence of God through faith in Jesus and stay there. And more than that, become God's children. Not just servants hovering around the outside doing his bidding. His children hanging around in his very presence and soaking up his power and love and then sharing it abroad. Now, I want to invite you today, if you have never trusted Christ as your high priest, if you've never got into him as the way to God, if you have never surrendered to him as the king, this is a good day to do that. This is a good day to recognize him for who he is, to recognize sin and its consequences for what they are, and to repent. To say, God, I don't want to be swept away in Korah's rebellion. I renounce my rebellion against you, whatever it may be. I surrender myself to you. Because you know, I can't do your will unless you're helping me with them. But with you, all things are possible. And I want to be forgiven. I don't want sin's consequences to come on my head. 
I want him to be washed clean of them so I can serve you in love. And, and I'll do whatever you want me to do. David said, I'd rather be a gatekeeper at the house of God than be on top with the mighty who don't know God. Give me that gatekeeper role. I don't care. Just give me a tiny little role. Whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. And there you're going to be blessed. I promise you. And God will figure out exactly what gifts he has for you in the body of Christ so the whole body can be built up so we can represent Jesus in this world. That's really where I want to uh, take us today at the end of this is that we live in a world not just of Israelites who've turned away and rebelled. There are plenty of them. There are plenty of former Christians who've wandered off and they're worshiping idols. They're not worshiping God anymore. They're living their own way and they're living the consequences of rebellion and sin's coming down on their heads gradually, gradually, and they're being destroyed. But there's a whole host of people out there who don't know God at all, who've never had a taste of Jesus, who've never received the Bible. I appreciate your testimony today. Sharon, up here, Mike, about how what a treasure the Bible was, and it was sort of hard for you to get at first, but eventually when you did get it, it became life to you. You know, we've got friends out there who have probably never read the Bible, classmates at school, never really heard of Jesus except as a cuss word. And they're dying in sin. It's writ large on the paper. Maybe you saw it a couple weeks ago. Front page of the Republican Herald Sunday paper, the, the, the emotional and psychological, but they don't name it what it really is, a spiritual crisis that's going on in the children of our schools, certainly in this county, but you read about it across the country. The kids are lost. They are disconnected from God. They live in families that are disconnected from God, and those families are broken, and they're feeling all the pain of a dysfunctional family. They don't know who they are. They've lost hold of an identity that comes from a secure household, and they're broken inside, and they have no source of hope, and they think this world is all there is, and when the pain gets too high, they want to check out, and that spirit is all over the place in our country. People are dying out there because they don't have Jesus. And Jesus put these 12 together and he put the church that came after them together because he wanted us to represent him to go out there and save those people. Not that we can save them, but we can bear testimony and we can bring them to the one who can. The great high priest who died for their sins, who died for our sins and we've experienced it. Mike is right. Every single one of you who knows Jesus has a testimony. Sometimes the fact that you have peace and you don't want to kill yourself when things go bad because you know God is going to call you to account one day and you have hope in him even when things are painful. That's what they need to hear. Oh, there's a way to get hope. There's a way out of the consequences of sin and rebellion. There's a way out of not knowing God and dying in that not knowing. And how are they going to find out if they don't find out from you and me who know him? who claim to know him and claim to walk with him. We've got a treasure to share, and if we don't share it, woe is us. That's what Paul says about himself. I've got this uh, message of the gospel, and if I don't share it, I, woe is me for not sharing it. He didn't want to stand before God at the last day and have God ask him, why didn't you share with those people who were dying around you? 
Why did you just let them go off into destruction and, and let them die in their sin? Why didn't you at least tell them the, a piece of your own testimony, the good news that I saved and changed you? Now, did Paul just write that for himself? Man, I could preach. <laughs> Jesus, thank you. Thank you, Lord. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to Igniting Your Faith. Let God's Word empower your life with new growth that encourages everyone you meet. Special piano music played by Cindy McClelland. You can find more information about Dr. Chris Fisher, this podcast, and the church at our website, havenfirstumc.org. We hope you will join us again next week and let God ignite your faith.